Welcome to the High Performance Groundwork podcast. My name is Hugo Menard, and my guest today is Gail Smurden. She helps focus and re-energize workplaces by doing what matters. She's a, a passionate and experienced learning and organizational development professional who knows that given the right environment and support, people have immense capability awaiting to be revealed. She helps government and non-profit organizations be their best by bringing out the best in their people, their leaders, and their teams. She has a PhD in the social sciences, a graduate diploma in psychology, as well as certifications in several psychometric and personality inventories. She's the author of two books. One is I Develop, How to Take, How to take Change of Your Professional Development by Becoming a Conscious Learner. And the second one is Do One Thing and Do It Deep, How to Focus and Energize Your Workplace. So welcome, Gail. Hey there, Hugo. How are you doing? Good. So I would like to start with um, what were the situations that prompted you to write your books? Because I'm assuming there was something that happened around that. Yeah, absolutely. Look, I'll start with the latest one. Um, so Do One Thing and Do It Deep, just because it's, you know, freshest in my mind, is a book that came out of uh, just like a catalyzing experience I had in a workplace. I was coming back from a meeting, um, I'd just been given another project to do. I already had quite a lot of projects to do and, uh, you know, they were progressing. So we'd engage stakeholders and we're, you know, building momentum. And all of a sudden we had this directive that said, we have to do this um, and it's important. And I thought, I don't even see how this really fits with our strategic plan or why we're doing this now. And that just wasn't explained, it's just do this. And the, this wasn't even really very, very clear. So I was puzzling, what am I going to do with all my other projects? How am I going to manage this? What does this mean? How am I going to get more information? It was, yeah, a little bit concerning. And I just found myself standing, I'd walk back to my desk and I was just standing near my desk and I just took a deep breath and I went, can't we just do one thing? Because I was just frustrated with how many projects seem to be on the go just across our team alone, let alone across our department and the organisation. Um, there was just so much going on that people were overwhelmed and it certainly hasn't got any better since I had that thought quite a few years ago. But the thing that made me laugh when I was standing in my desk thinking, can't we just do one thing, was I'd just come from another organisation, probably, you know, a block away. And I was remember that I'd been walking around on those floors thinking, why can't I ever get a project up? Like, why does it have to go to this next meeting? Uh, the manager's sort of saying, maybe not just now, or I haven't got the headspace to think about it yet, or it needs to go to another stakeholder. Um, we're thinking about resource allocation, even though we have the budget or it didn't need a budget. So in that organisation, I was constantly uh, getting up to the stage of implementing something. And then all of a sudden, it was just sort of pulled, uh, you know, no, not, not right now. And that change of mind just seemed to happen all the time. Change of mind or lack of decision to proceed. And that was super frustrating as well, because once you put your heart and soul into something, and you know that it's going to benefit when people just go no all the time, even after they've asked for it, it's uh, it's very, very frustrating. And I used to walk around there going, 
can we just do one thing? And it's like, I'm in two completely opposite scenarios where I've got so much, I don't know what to do with myself, or I've got nothing that I can get up and implementing. And to me, the answer is to really, really focus on doing one thing. And, and sort of a little bit later on, I got to the idea that we needed to do it deep. It's not just do it because, you know, we have to do it. It's tick and flick, all the other kids are doing it. It's, it's because it's going to make a difference that we need to invest some time and effort and really back it from our leaders. So that was sort of the catalyzing experience for do one thing and do it deep. Um, I think I developed, which is about how to take charge of your professional development, came out of from working as a learning and development um, manager for some time. And it seemed that we would speak to people about what they needed. Um, we'd have some ideas about what where the organisation was going and what was going to be very, very good for people to sort of get on top of. But getting people engaged with any form of training or workshop or mentoring was a little bit tricky because it was always not quite the right thing, not quite the right time. I don't think it really suits me. Or people were completely not interested at all. Um, or, you know, we need you to bring it out to where we are. And sometimes that was, you know, really, really tricky. So there are just a lot of impediments to actually getting good learning across. And when you tried to mandate stuff and people would be coming into, say, a training workshop or to hear someone speak, they, you know, it was sort of often with their arms crossed in front of them. And why do I have to be here? So, you know, there was a big struggle with, um, learning and I just wanted to encourage some people who were feeling a little bit challenged with what was offered or um, with their ability to engage with learning or seeing it as necessary I just wanted to challenge them to step up a little bit like don't wait for us to bring your stuff just you know the world's full of knowledge and if you learn how to learn and how to get support then you know you can advance your, your career and know your life I suppose um, by taking charge of it and becoming really really conscious about the fact that we're learning creatures and that we you know learn stuff every day so yeah that was sort of the genesis of that one so two different things but they both talk about one thing so even before I'd written the one thing book um, the I develop book is really about doing one thing focusing on a small incremental changes that you can make in your life um, I call it working on project you and um, yeah just doing one thing focusing on that and then moving to the next thing don't overwhelm yourself with too much because there's already so much going on yeah with the the doing the one thing can you share some examples of how that's been how it's played out when you've helped uh, organizations or individuals to actually make that a reality yeah so organizationally it's quite tricky which is probably why I wanted to write the book because I think that sort of culture change is important there are there are examples like the British rowing crew who um, you know they've been losing um yeah, they never won an Olympics since 1912 or something. And they developed a mantra, which was, will it make the boat go faster? And anything that didn't fit the criteria of will it make the boat go faster, 
was either ignored or handed off to someone else to do. So anything that was going to help them. And they they looked under every nook and cranny, you know, so um, the boat, the oars, the uniforms, the um, what they ate, how they slept, you know, how they worked together, were they getting along, um, everything, you know, every aspect of sports, physiology and psychology and, you know, all water dynamics, I don't know stuff like that um, so they looked at everything they possibly could and set it up against that criteria will it make the boat go faster and I think we've all got a question that we can ask around that so that's sort of the one of the classic examples but it's knowing what your purpose is and then setting up a an idea around how you're going to achieve that um, there are organizations who will do this from time to time. I know Microsoft um, APAC used to run a conference. They were sort of sliding a little bit, I, I believe, and um, they ran a conference that was just around better together. And they had a lot of different ways of telling the story of how they're better together. So that really, that simple meme, which I'm pretty sure would have had a lot of people rolling their eyes at the beginning. Um, you know, they used it for about three or four years at their conference and spoke about it a lot in their organisation so that it actually became, um, you know, a, a very, very useful tool for thinking about how they worked. And there were, you know, clear performance improvements and, um, you know, measurable ways of, of seeing the culture change that happened uh, in that situation. So, and, and lots of organisations do this in little ways as well. I think, um, one of the biggest opportunities that we miss in an organisation is we tend to do um, engagement or culture surveys uh, a lot and then we don't do anything with them. So we ask the question, what is it that's important to you? How are we doing? And we go, oh, yeah, cool. Okay, so go off and come up with some goals for your team. And um, then, you know, two years later or a year later when you have to do the next survey, there's a bit of a flurry of, oh, uh, did we do anything? What were we supposed to do? And then we do the next round. And to get people interested, you know, we have to say you'll win an iPad or, you know, you can get coffee vouchers or there's a sausage sizzle or whatever it is. So we really have to promote it. And the reason we have to do that is because we've actually not done anything with the information. We've broken people's trust. So I think one of the biggest ways that an organisation or a department could think about doing one thing and doing one thing deep is by looking at the survey results from their people and then just doing a small change, like a small change that takes a long time. Because uh, when I talk about deep, I'm speaking about the principles of deep, which are find one thing that matters, do it over time, do it in a lot of different ways, because you need to engage people um, because of their communication style and their learning style and try and engage people as much as possible. So, so they're the four principles of DEEP. So if you were to apply that to, say, an engagement survey result and you picked one thing that people had said mattered, um, you gave them the rest of the year to do that and you worked out a sort of a campaign where you kept it fresh in people's minds and... Um, you know, supported people in lots of different ways, listened to what people were saying, you know, had leaders that were actually actively sponsoring the idea that this small change was important. 
um, then you could start to see some really, really dramatic results, I think, because that little move um, of motivation uh, builds incredible momentum, I think. And you get a lot of um, sort of incidental uh, benefits from doing the one thing. So say you wanted to be better at listening. Um, I think once you're working that as a, in a group situation, there's a lot of social things that start to happen as well so that you can build greater connection and trust you're all talking about a similar thing so you can start to break down silos. So there's a lot of things that come along with actually doing the process, not just the outcome of the one thing that you want to be better at. So, yeah, it's it's in some organisations and I think that there are a lot more who could benefit from doing one thing and doing a deep and it doesn't need to be big and flashy and expensive it can be you know small but as long as it follows those principles I, I just think there's huge potential for shifting organizational culture by really focusing the attention of people on one thing that matters because if you're focusing attention it's like you know shining a laser on it rather than just having sort of soft background lighting you know really um, cuts through and yeah helps helps change the culture in a really really positive way Mm. Now, you also do uh, workshops for better workplace conversations, and that seems to sort of link in with this, is that it seems to start with a conversation. What are some of the problems that you're seeing with the conversations that are happening at the moment? Mm. So the better workplace um, pieces that I work on around um, how to think uh, understanding how you think so there's a a way of looking at people's different thinking preferences um, the other one is how to coach so how to actually coach people um, which for me is all about helping people get their own insights and the third one is around feedback and the importance of being able to uh, give and receive and more importantly seeking feedback um, in an organisation. So the reason that I, I work with those, so they're things that I've, I've worked with for a lot of years when I've been doing training in different organisations. Um, and I found that I just couldn't let them go with these programs. So some of the programs I do for iDevelop where we're looking at developing a learning culture in an organisation, these are really, really critical things that I find I have to keep coming back to to make sure that people understand that uh, people think differently and it's really, really important for us to embrace difference of thinking um, and lots of other sorts of difference, but that has incredible benefits for the organisation. Once we understand that people have different ideas, opinions and think differently from me and you sort of have a bit of an understanding about what that looks like and can make a bit more sense of it, um, when you can help other people think things through for themselves and give them that sort of autonomy to um, come up with their own ideas because they're going to be more invested in them. And when you can help people be really, really kind and compassionate about giving feedback, I think that's sort of the basis for any of the work that we do. Um, 
I've been thinking a lot recently about uh, some conversations that I've been having, not necessarily just in the workplace, but just generally how I'll be sitting with some people and they just want to tell me stuff. And that's fine. Um, certainly if you're you know, in a coaching situation, that's perfect. You want them to tell you things. But sometimes you actually want to be in a conversation and you want to be heard. And a lot of the time, you know, I'm, I'm sitting there thinking, no one's really asking any questions about me or what I'm thinking. Um, they're really, really interested in getting their point across. And it's usually, you know, um, quite, you know, strong one way or the other. It's like, this is my opinion and this is why it matters and you really should listen to me. And I'm sort of sitting there thinking, you know, I've got lots of stuff inside me that might be useful in this, but I can't really get a word in. And I'm not really feeling like engaging because, you know, you're just being a bit bombastic or whatever. So I don't know, I've been thinking a lot about the fact that, you know, if I'm feeling like this, a lot of other people are feeling like this and that having those skills of understanding different thinking of being able to encourage people to speak and be heard. Um, yeah, and then being able to give advice and feedback in a nice way is probably not a bad thing. It might've had something to do with some of my relatives at Christmas time, I'm just saying. But, but yes, that's been playing on my mind a little bit. But there's so much going on in organisations with, you know, competition for resources, ideas around status and worth of different types of work um, that, you know, there, there's always going to be conflicts and um, confusions and lack of understanding. And that's not helped by the fact that we're all so busy we're just running flat chat out there in a lot of organisations. We don't have time to stop and listen to things because we've got our heads down and our little bottoms up. And um, yeah, it that sort of stress doesn't open you to being receptive to other things that are going on that could really help you um, and could help the organisation. So it's probably a roundabout way of answering that, but... Mm. Well, I like it because you brought up something which I'm really interested in is giving and receiving feedback in a way that works because I think that is so fundamental if there are problems, which there are. Fee giving feedback it seems to be one of those first steps. So can you share a little bit more about how you do that in a way that isn't, um, or in, in a way that works, let me put it that Yeah, way. okay. So um, first of all, I think feedback's the third most important thing. I think understanding difference is most important because if you don't do that, you're not going to be prepared to listen. Um, if you can't coach people, if you're not good at asking great questions that bring people to insight, I think that's what you base great feedback on. Because I think when you can make feedback more about asking and supporting people to think things through for themselves and then giving advice when it's needed because sometimes it is needed I, I, I actually think we we can coach a lot more than we think we can um, like we can't coach someone in what my password is that's just stupid we just have to tell them but there are a lot of opportunities where we can help people think things through for themselves and that autonomy um, is really sort of um, freeing in a way it, it, it really motivates you but to get back to feedback when I first started in learning and development we used to call feedback um, 
giving feedback. You know, it was about, you know, how you did it, how you did it to another person. Uh, and then we got into this trend of giving and receiving feedback. Okay, so it's not just what I'm saying, it's also how this person's going to take what I'm saying. Um, and that's all well and good. And I think for me, the most important thing in any of those situations is to bring a mindset of curiosity and compassion. So being genuinely interested in the fact that something's gone wrong, there's an issue or there's something someone's struggling with and you want to help them or there's something you've noticed, then um, it's your intention is not to, you know, float your own ego. It's actually because you're interested in seeing this person do the best they can and that something's going on and that you might not know what that is. So let's not assume. So we bring a curious and compassionate mindset. I think that's probably key for me. There's lots of things about asking questions or uh, it, it's definitely not doing that thing where you say good thing, bad thing, good thing. No, no, no. Um, but where we've moved to now in feedback is really around seeking feedback. So it's encouraging people to seek feedback because we know that when you're giving and getting feedback from people, um, it can be quite threatening. Even if you're uh, reasonably good at what you're doing, people can hear it, feel threatened by it because you're not really sure what state they're in at the time. And once you sort of set trigger something off for someone, and put them in that sort of um, that threat state, like you know, your your the old part of your brain is sort of kicking in and thinking, mm, I'm being attacked by a saber toothed tiger now, and you your mind floods with um, stress hormones, and you stop seeing peripheral vision, like literally, you don't see proliferary. Oh can't say that now anyway you can't see wide yep. <laughs> you can only see narrow you're actually about 10 um iq points dumber because all your system is going into protecting yourself and either wanting to run away or to freeze or to punch someone in the nose none of those i'm going to recommend in the workplace um so what we want to do is we want to encourage people um, into a towards state. So this is really the work around um, the SCARF model that David Rock and the Neuro Leadership Institute talk about a lot. Um, and I, I probably live and die by the SCARF model. I think it's fantastic. Uh, but it's, it's about making sure that we're putting people in a towards state. So they're receptive and open. And the best thing to overcome the fear um, and the stress that goes along with feedback is building into the culture an idea that asking for feedback is a good thing. So supporting people to seek it out for themselves. Because once you're asking the question for yourself, how did I go at that presentation? Would you mind coming along and observing me and tell me, telling me what you think? Um, I've written this um, document and I'm a bit unsure certain about something could you tell me what you think about that and as soon as you get um, into that sort of state because you're doing the seeking uh, you move away from that threat state and it becomes much much more useful so I still think we need to be aware of how we give feedback and how people are receiving feedback but also I think 
talking more about seeking feedback and finding ways to support that is going to be a much, much more useful way to sort of progress the sort of conversations and the growth that we want to see in organisations. Yeah, oh, I love that. Just doing it, like just changing the environment before that situation that yeah. has to happen. That, that's so good. Yeah. Can you touch on those two things that you said you believe needs to happen before feedback? You said coaching and I can't remember the, the first one. It's oh, yeah, mind. thinking style. So yeah. one of the tools that I use a lot is... Um, a Herman Brain Dominance Instrument or the Neithling Brain Instrument. So it's whole brain thinking. So there's a couple of different models out there that use that. But it's, um, and I like a lot of personality inventories will do that. But I, I like the simplicity of uh, these two thinking models. And I think thinking about thinking is less threatening than thinking about your personality or your behaviour. And it, it's a little bit easier to deal with. So I find, I find that quite a useful thing to talk about with people, just to say that, um, look, we all have preferences with how we think. We can think in lots of different ways, but we have a preference. And some people have a left brain preference or a right brain preference. And some people have um, a higher executive function or a more process-driven function. So, so a higher or lower, which is, it's horrible language because, well, that's how English does it. People assume higher means better. When it doesn't, it's just where it's sitting on the diagram. So you come up with these four different quadrants and you can start to recognise people who are, you know, big picture, strategic thinkers who are future focused. And they're really, really different from people who are really people focused. Like they're just thinking about the people and the implications for people and the connections for people. Um, then there are people who are really interested in process. How's it going to work? Um, and then there are also people who really want the details and to understand, um, yeah, the facts. Just give me the facts around that. So it's a simple model that has four different quadrants. But once you start, once you know it and you start looking at it in the conversations that you're having with people, you can you can sort of see where things go wrong. So I remember, you know, having a conversation with this woman who I liked, but we were just, I don't know, it was like I'd be saying something and she'd be saying something and I'd be saying, and it's like, yeah, but we were just speaking in different quadrants and being able to move into someone else's quadrant and, you know, just take a bit of a holiday there, don't have to live there, to understand um, how their thinking is different to yours and, by knowing that, you can then shape your responses so that you can get through to them more easily, so that you can influence, so that you can collaborate, uh, because you can make that connection with them so much more easily. So for me, that part is really keen and just, you know, getting an idea of how we need all of them and how everyone in that picture is so, so important to making the organisation or our teams function, but that we're different and we need to respect that. And we need to make sure that we're bringing all of those wonderful pieces of thinking into the puzzle that is this crazy thing we call work. Um, because that's how we're going to understand it, not by sticking to the one thing that we know and just keeping saying that we need to bring people into the puzzle. So that's that's where I like to start. 
Um, the second thing is that I like to ask, not to tell. I think there's a lot of telling going on out there. And while it's sometimes necessary, that asking is more important. So it's that skill of coaching, whether we're coaching as managers to support our people to perform better uh, or to get along with each other. Um, but more importantly, it's also when we're working with teams and, uh, you know, in, in meetings with project groups, because, you know, teams are really sort of flexible things now. Um, yeah, so it's being able to ask questions that can drive people to an outcome that everyone can get on board with. So having a bit of a process around how to ask great questions for people to come up with a solution and take some action. Because, you know, just thinking about stuff isn't enough. We need to make sure that we're doing something with what we're thinking. Um, yeah, so that coaching process is just, I think, super critical, particularly at the moment. So um, unlike me at the moment, doing lots of talking, <laughs> I usually do lots of asking. So yeah, tell me what you're thinking about that. Um, and it's, it's amazing how a good question can actually move someone. Um, you can actually use uh, different sorts of questions to move people from getting stuck in issues to more visionary or you know, future focused questions. So you can really work with different questions to move people around to help them to get you know, to where they need to be. Yeah, so I think that's, a, that's an absolute must for everybody in the organisation. Yeah, can you talk more about those questions? Are there um, kind of categories or, or different concepts that you can think of to have a bit of a, a structure to what question to ask rather than just All right. thinking yeah. I'm going to ask questions? So, yeah. So, well, the most basic one is obviously open and closed questions. So um, what is an open question? Well, that is because you don't say yes or no to it. Um, uh, is this a closed question? Yes, because you say yes or no. So, um, and the point with open and closed questions, of course, is that uh, open questions help open out the whole conversation. So, um, you know, they help generate ideas and get you to think around different, different solutions and think together on things. So, you know, it's a, con uh, sorry, it's a divergent conversation. Whereas when you need to come to a decision and you need some agreement, then you need, um, sorry, did I say that back to front? So no, it's divergent I, I and it's, right. it's convergent and if yeah. you bring it back together again. So if you want to, you know, come to a decision, then you have to start asking some closed questions. So that's probably the most basic sort of way of thinking about questions. Um, when you're thinking about a coaching conversation that you might be having with someone, um, the classic model, of course, is the GROW model uh, by Whitmore, whose name, first name I just can't remember now, but anyway, um, Mr. Whitmore, quite a long time ago, came up with the GROW model, and it's still super useful for so many situations. So it's what's the goal, which is the G part of it. Um, and you, you know, talk about questions around what's your goal, uh, and you sort of delve into that a little bit. Then you ask, what's the reality, which is your R of the grow. So what's actually going on at the moment? So what's happening? What other things do I need to know? What's happening in the environment? What's happening with me? 
Um, yeah, so just taking into account um, an environmental scan of what's happening around this question at the moment. And after the R, there's the O, which is your options. So now that you know what your goal is and you know what the context is for that, you know, understand the reality for that, then usually you find that lots of options just sort of start dropping out of that. So that means that I can do this or this or this. And then you want to bring the conversation back in and say, all right, so what's next, which is the W part. So, um, you know, what is it that we're going to do right now, hopefully before we leave this meeting? Because I think, you know, one little step before you leave the room is uh, a good thing to start to build some momentum. Um, so that's a really, really useful coaching model. I still use that all the time. Um, and also when I'm making decisions and I'll, I'll just use it for myself as well. So I'll go, hang on, what's going on here? What is it that I'm wanting to do? Oh, I want to do, um, I want to get some lunch. I'm hungry. Um, so, okay. So what are my options? Well, um, I'm at work. Um, I forgot to bring my lunch today. Uh, so I have to go out and get something. I've got a meeting at one o'clock, so I can't be too long. Uh, I want to eat a bit healthy because I want to be, you know, on top of things for my meeting. That means I can't go very far. It's got to be something healthy. Well, there's that place or that place. Okay, so they're my options. All right, what am I going to do? I'm going to do that. So even thinking through very, very simple things. And the reason that this is so useful is because what people often do is they go from the G to the W. They go, all right, what do I want to do? All right, let's do that. And they don't actually stop to expand that out and think about uh, consequences and um, you know, other things that they need to think about. It's just how we go. We grab for the, the closest or the most familiar solution because you know, our brains are run by a lot of very, very unconscious biases. So we'll just quickly pick up the very, very next thing. It's, uh, you know, you can observe that in managers sometimes when they're standing somewhere, they have an idea and they go, would you do that? Because you happen to be standing next to them. You're not the best person for the job, but you're there. So you get to do that. So yeah, so instead of jumping from, here's a problem, that's the solution, you actually take just that little bit extra time to think through what the reality is. And there's lots of different ways of asking questions around that. So when you're in a coaching conversation, you can just ask things like, what, what's your goal? You know, how do you see that working out? Tell me about what's going on for you at the moment. Are there other things? Should we talk to other people about this to make sure that we've got all of the things covered off? Now, what are the options? What are the other options? Are there any other options than that? You know, just uh, what else can we think of? Uh, and then, all right, now that we know all that, what are we absolutely going to do and get behind? Yeah. Now, something you do, which I find really interesting, is creating environmental shifts to help people um, kind of access their capabilities. Could you talk to what some of the problems are in environmental situations and then what some of those solutions are? Mm. Can be a little bit trickier because um, quite often you'll see that there's an issue with something that you want to address. Um, maybe you're feeling stressed at work. Maybe you're overwhelmed with too much to do. Maybe you can't get any projects through. Whatever it is, um, there are things that you can do about that for yourself. Um, and and I think that's really, really important, but we often overlook 
the environment we're in creating the need for you to do that. So I have a bit of a thing, um, a love me, hate me relationship with resilience training because I think it's really, really important that people are resilient, that, they're, that they manage change well, that they bounce back from you know, issues that they're having. I think it's really important, but let's not create the issue in the first place. Um, I think if we keep putting people back into stressful environments and then just expecting them to be more and more resilient, we're mad. And I think we're a little bit evil so, yeah, um, the structural things are things that I'm sort of quite interested in, and they're usually things that are driven top down. Um, um, I'd really like to be able to say, no, there's a big groundswell of stuff for this, and it's all very, very doable. It can happen, but if you don't have the leadership on board, uh, or even when leadership that is on board changes, it doesn't take a lot to topple a lot of very good work. Uh, so it's trickier. I think if you can get the CEO and the executive leadership team on board, and that's what we talk about in, um, that's what I talk about in Do One Thing and Do It Deep, is really engaging leaders in the idea that creating this environment matters. Because I think that's, an immense opportunity for people. And we are talking more about culture and environments at the moment, um, which is great to see, but I still see a lot of flailing about with how we actually do that very, very practical thing that we could do over time and, you know, not rush into thinking that we have to fix everything. So getting leadership on board is really critical. And I think one of the ways that you do that is you, you engage them in, the role of leader as sponsor, um, which is what I like to call it, you speak to leadership around um, or, or they initiate an idea that's going to be super helpful or something that we can improve on, do a little bit together, and then you decide that it matters. So you have to get behind it first and then you have to do a little bit of listening. So that's the second part of the leadership journey if they want to lead as sponsors, is they need to go out and start talking to people about their experience of whatever this is because they can't know everything that is going on for other people. Once they do do that and you come up with some ideas around how you want to set up the environment, um, they need to start saying whatever the message is, whatever this important thing is in sort of, sticky and clear ways you know ways that people can remember so they need to be on message almost it's almost like a political campaign so you need to decide you're going to run then you need to take like a listening tour you know getting on that bus and getting out to your constituents then you need to have your message and you need to be on message all the time because you need to build that sort of certainty if you start um, really wavering on the message it can get a little bit confusing. So, you know, stick to the message, then you need to be able to walk the talk. So you have to do whatever it is that is required uh, as an outcome of the change that you want to make. So, you know, you have to have the, the behaviours and 
you know, maybe if it's a software program, you don't have to do the software yourself, but, you know, you have to be able to be open to trying new things and, yeah, so you have to walk the talk and then you have to hold people accountable who aren't walking the talk. That's your other role as a, as a sponsor is to make sure that you're bringing people in line because there's nothing that will undercut some good cultural change like, um, you know, people not doing it and being allowed to, you know, get away with um, being disruptive and not, not healthy criticism or dissension, that's fine, but people who are being negative and undermining um, what's going on. And then you just need to work with people on it for a while. This is like um, in a political campaign, you could think about, you know, the grip and grin or your town halls where you're going out and you just, you just keep reinforcing the message and listening to people and, and working with them on whatever it is. And then you want to reward them. You want to celebrate with them when things go well. Um, commiserate when things don't. Put your hands up when things don't. Um, and then after, you know, after that, you've sort of reached your destination and you've made um, a small but impactful change that you wanted to make around a specific thing, um, but you've also had all these incidental things. Now, the problem with me is, when I'm explaining this, is I don't like telling people what to do. So um, I, I want people to come up with what this one thing is themselves. So it can sound a little bit vague and theoretical, but that's basically because everyone has a different one thing. And I, I'm, I'm not here to tell you what that is because it's more important that you do the one thing that you think is important. And even by some objective measure, if it wasn't the most important thing that you could possibly be doing right at this moment, if you think it matters and you can see a change, then you're going to be motivated to do the next one thing. So, yeah, that's sort of, it, it's tricky because it's really, really individual, like setting that up, but having good leadership and creating the supports around it. At a team level, you probably want to think about how the manager is going to support what you do and how you're going to involve colleagues. So I'm actually writing another book at the moment, which is called, well, it's working title at the moment is called Team Up, How to Lift Your People and Your Productivity. Um, and it's really applying the one thing message to working with teams. Um, and it's about getting on board with the idea that you can create this sort of environment when you don't have an organisation that's driving that, at least at a team level, you can take some control over some of the things that you're doing. And what you want to be doing there, obviously, is finding one thing that really, really matters. And then you want to do it deep. And for me, in the team situation, that means that you want to be looking at whatever it is that you've identified that you think that you can do a little bit better um, what are your beliefs around that and, and how are you sort of living those out? So really thinking about what it is that you believe. Um, how much agency do you have to, to change what's happening at that time? And do you have the capability to do it? Do you have the capacity? You know, do you have the authorising environment where you can actually make a change? And then the third part is... Um, 
structure. Sorry, that just left my head for a moment. Yeah, it is structure. So what is it that you want to put in place that is going to make sure that the thing that you're put, investing time in and that you really want to change, what's the things that you can put in place? So this is just a no-brainer that you just, you're just going to do this. And there's lots of things we can learn from, you know, people who write about habits and around setting up different uh, different habits to embed um, your structure at a personal level. And then at a team level, you sort of get some group accountability around uh, what's happening. So that, that works sort of nicely in a team environment. Um, so yeah, you want to really, really dig deep into what this one thing is and what it means to you. And um, yeah, so basically you pick it up and give it a really, really good shake and see what falls out. And then once you've done that, you want to experiment a little bit. So set up some, um, some ways to test out the things that you're thinking that might help and make it fun, really make it fun. So give it a crazy name, uh, have some stupid picture. I don't, I don't mind. Make it into a game, make it a snakes and ladders game. You know, we did that really well today or we didn't. Um, yeah, just make it fun. And a lot of people will look at those and go, yeah, that's a bit naff, but they come around, they come around, don't you worry. Um, yeah, so, so they're sort of the things that when I'm working with the team, I'm looking for them to find something that really matters. We have a really good look at it and we find out we can play with it and we give them ownership of that. So they have to come up with the solutions. And um, rather than keeping it vague, they're uh, an example from a team that I managed um, a while ago we used to, um, oh, they came in one day and they were all cranky and blah, blah, blah. This was going on and that was going on. I'm just sort of sitting there patiently at the meeting, having my own stuff going on and just sort of looking around going, you know what? I'm fed up with this. Just tired of this complaining. Like I'm fine with people having a bit of a whinge. I think it's quite helpful for people to let stuff out for a little while. But nah, this was this was just going a little bit beyond the pale. So said, all right, then I want to hear what's going on. And we did a big map of all the stuff that they were unhappy about, the things that weren't work, working well, and we picked one thing to do. I said, all right, so we've captured all that. Can we put that aside for the moment and think about one thing that we have control over that we can make a difference with? And basically it said, well, communication. Communication isn't good, but, you know, uh, that sort of makes me laugh because that's what everyone says, but no one sort of says what that means. So we dug a little bit deeper about what that meant. And we had a, some interesting discussions around, you know, different forms of communication. And what actually came out of it was something completely different. Um, they said, look, we, we've got all these meetings to go to and we're never getting any stuff done. And, you know, um, we're getting all this information from meetings that we don't really need. I don't know what I'm doing there. And they just go on forever and there's a million of them and I don't start to get my work done till four o'clock in the afternoon when all the meetings finish. And, you know, I'm going, well, I hear you. And anyway, we came up with an idea that rather than just jump straight in and say, all right, what are we going to do about all these meetings? We said, well, let's test out our theory. So we did a, um, we did an experiment and we, we thought, right, we're concerned about going to meetings that don't actually matter to how I work and what I'm doing. So let's measure that. Let's just measure it on zero to 10. 
How relevant was that meeting for you? We're going to measure it for two weeks. All your meetings, come in with a chart. And we'll call it the meeting relevance score, which is actually MRS, which is misses. So we used to say, how's the misses? And I don't know whether that's politically correct or not anymore, but it was just funny at the time. So someone had come back from a meeting and you go, how's the missus? And they'd say, well, you know. And of course, by the afternoon of the day that we came up with that little experiment for ourselves, we discovered, of course, that we hadn't really identified relevant to whom. So is it relevant to me? How do I actually determine relevance? So that was another really, really interesting conversation. But we sort of left that. We went back to doing our measuring. And we just had that discussion because the good thing is something pops up. It's a great discussion, um, you know, something for us to think about that's going to help us. So we did the um, meeting relevance score over a couple of weeks and we came up with some pretty cool stuff around, you know, um, some of them are relevant to me. Some of them aren't relevant to me, but they're relevant to another project and they really need me to be there. It's just we don't know how to tell the difference. So that became the real problem then. How do I tell the difference between a meeting I need to go to or don't need to go to? And we set some ground rules. You know, if there's more than one person from our team going, um, let's, you know, find out if that's necessary. Um, people were going to meetings and they were thinking, I've just got nothing to contribute here. I don't know why I'm here. So we set up a, um, a thing where we pick a few meetings each week and we'd ring the organiser and talk to them say, you know, what am I doing there? Do I need to bring anything? Is there something I can do to help? So we wanted to be really, really respectful of the fact that this person thought that they needed us to be there, but we wanted to make sure that they just weren't doing it out of rote. So we did a little bit of investigation around that. And in the end, we came up with a way of saving, you know, some time for ourselves. Um, and we also found that, you know, we got more out of meetings because we were going to ones that were necessary for us and where we could actually feel that we can contribute and just didn't feel that we were wasting our time. Um, and the thing that happened after that, of course, is we went, all right, so how are we running our meetings? You know, are we, uh, are we doing things that are relevant? And how are we showing relevance in our own meetings? And are we asking people that we don't need to invite? And are we doing this for ourselves? So we had to sort of, you know, take a little bit of our own medicine and start um, thinking about that. And we did make some some changes that I think not just made us think more about meetings, but just made us be more respectful of other people's time and our own time and more compassionate to each other. I, it was, it was a really, really interesting experiment. And, you know, we went on to do a couple of other things, but um, yeah, I always remember the misses. Yeah. I oh, think that is such a wonderful example. Um, yeah. Because what I'm hearing from that, I think is those very human things of have an open mind, be curious, as you're saying, like ask the question. Um, and it seems to be less of a relying on a structure and more relying on our own curiosity and compassion and, and understanding, which is everyone can do that. Um, you don't need some fancy degree for that. So that's so good to hear. Mm. Um, but it starts to spread too. So other people hear about what you're doing. And, and it starts to become embedded. So it sort of starts to take on a life of its own. I find that um, a lot of people get concerned about doing stuff because, you know, some people aren't going to like it or, you know, there's going to be 
someone's going to kick up about it. There's going to be a reaction to that. And, you know, I just go, fantastic. You know, someone's reacting to it. That's brilliant. Let's go and talk to them. Find out what's going on. Um, rather than that sort of, oh, you know, we better not do it because we're going to upset someone. It's like, no, we're going to do this. We're going to talk to them about this is what we want to do. Tell me why that's not a great idea. Um, Can you give some examples of when people have had some kind of reaction and uh, what, what kind of happened there? Yeah, so um, uh, talking to a leadership team, we'd just done a values refresh and they were very concerned about how the values were going to be taken, um, how they could be taken out of context, how they could be used against them. Like there was a lot of fear around it. And um, it didn't actually have, to, in that instance, it didn't have to leave the room because we brought up the fact that, well, you know, let's hear from other departments about what they're observing with their people. And um, yeah, it just became a conversation where people heard other examples of overcoming this themselves. Um, and some of the people from the training department who'd been running some sessions on the values had talked about how people had, you know, initially been a little bit skeptical about this and this and this, but when we talked about this and this and this, then, you know, they overcame it. Um, and that often it's just that fear and not actually investigating for yourself or just having a knee-jerk reaction to something that someone said without actually checking it out. Um, but just by having that conversation around it, um, you can actually shift things. You don't always. There's a percentage of people who are just never going to want to know. And that's really more to do with them than it is to do with what's going on with the organisation because people have all sorts of stuff going on. Um, yeah, so, so yeah, that, that values meeting, it, it wasn't that we had to go out and talk to other people and, and reassure them. It was actually that we could sit down together and have that conversation. I can't remember the quote from Patrick Lencioni um, who talks about, you know, how brilliant it is that people are just being critical because that gives us a chance to talk to them and find out what's going on. Yeah. Something I'm very much interested in is bringing more wellness into the workplace. What, in your experience, like what are the challenges to that? Have you been in situations where people tried to bring in wellness and it either worked or didn't? Um, can you speak at all to that? Um, so I've already spoken about my concern about some wellness programs um, and I think they have their place, but, you know, I'm basically a sociologist. So I look at structure as being pretty critical. Um, I think we do have agency around certain stuff, but we shouldn't leave it up to everybody to, you know, constantly be battling uh, bad environments. Um, sorry, I've forgotten the question now. That, that's, well, I think that's part of the answer. Well, the question was about bringing well-being into the workplace. And I think oh, yeah, sorry. part yes. of that is yeah. that, cool. and, and I agree with you, that a lot of it should be structural, right? A lot of the problems we face. Um, yeah are there i was just wondering if there was uh anything else any other experiences or insights you've had yeah. in regards to that? okay so what i what i noticed particularly in uh over covid was that people were bringing in 
some, you know, some resilience training, they were doing meditation sessions, and they're fantastic. And, you know, I do all that sort of stuff myself as well. Um, but when it comes to the crux of it, I think it starts with your culture. Um, and that has to be, you know, guided by your leadership. So once again, we come back to making sure that leaders are setting a great example for people. Um, so yeah, a lot of work comes back to making sure managers are supported, uh, but other structural things like, have we got enough people to do the work we need? Are we clear on what it is that we, we're doing? Because quite often we're just doing so much stuff that doesn't relate to our strategic plan that could just be put off for a little while. Um, I know in government, you know, um, you'll be called on by a minister to have something in, you know, give me a response to this straight away. And you'll have to have all that done. So you have to have all that pre-thinking and there are, there are times when you have to do work that you don't need to really do or you might need to do, um, but it might never get used. So it's, it's really around being very, very clear about what it is that you're going to be doing and making sure everything aligns with that. Does everybody know what that is? Does everyone see how they fit into that? Um, do they have what's called line of sight division? So from where I'm sitting in the organisation and where the organisation's vision is, do I see how I connect with that? Because um, they're the sort of things that I think create wellness. Um, it, it creates a, an environment where people can flourish. And for me, that's the most important thing. I think um, there's a book by Patrick Lencioni called The Advantage, which is um, a guide to organisational health. And because he thinks that's the most important thing in, you know, in any organisation. And he starts the book with a, a conversation about him sitting with the CEO of an organisation and they're observing some things that the a team's doing on, I think it's a strategy day, I might be wrong about that. But everyone's having fun and they're engaged and, you know, they're doing great work. And he'll say, uh, uh, Patrick Lenziani said, so, you know, what is it that, that makes your culture so great that other people aren't getting? And the CEO said, I think other leaders see this as beneath them. Like, I think the answers are, I, I don't think they're easy, but I think they're quite simple. And they're probably easier than we think. Wow. Yeah, okay, that's quite a statement. Yeah, they think it's below them. Yeah, I was pretty blown away by that too. Yeah. So, yeah, find out what it is that you're meant to do and then try and make it easy. That's, yeah. I think that's a great plan. Wonderful. Um, do you have anything else uh, that you think is important that we haven't covered yet just before we finish up here? Or anything you might like to leave people with? Um, well, I was just thinking what popped into my mind when we were just speaking then was a couple of um, books that I've been reading lately by Gary McKeown, and he wrote Essentialism, which is basically doing uh, less better. Mm -hmm. um, which is a big mantra of mine. Just let's just do less stuff. Let's just have less stuff. Um, uh, but let's just make it better. And he's just recently, recently written another book, which is on 
effortless and how we try to make how we make things harder for ourselves and I think for me at the moment I'm really focused on how do we do what matters and how do we make it easier and part of that is you know giving people the agency to do it thinking about the beliefs we have around it and making sure that we've got the structures to put in place so yeah that's probably where I'm at at the moment yeah wonderful um, if people would like to contact you, find out more about you in some way, uh, how can they do that? And I'll put all of the links that you give in the description as well. Cool. Thank you. So, yeah, so I'm pretty findable on LinkedIn um, or I have a website. So if you just Google gailsmurden.com, that's my website. And, yeah, if you just type gailsmurden, I'm on LinkedIn. I post quite a bit on LinkedIn and some of them are funny and some of them are interesting so yeah every day I'll put a post out on LinkedIn if you're interested in following me you can do that there um but yeah if you want to get in touch about um, a program or just having a chat about the beers I'm uh, more than happy for you to do that there's contact page on my website that will get you there wonderful thank you so much for the conversation uh, so much good stuff in there thank you Hugo it was heaps of fun awesome You've been listening to the High Performance Groundwork podcast. If there's a conversation you believe needs to be had or an idea you believe needs to be spoken about when it comes to workplace wellness and making the work environment joyful, calm, and a place where we feel part of a supportive community, I would love to hear from you. If you run a company and would like to improve the well-being of your staff, you can head over to my website, highperformancegroundwork.com to find out how I may be able to help. And finally, if you enjoyed this, share it around.